Greetings program, hello and welcome to Tronologically Speaking, a movie-by-minute podcast talking about Disney's 1982 movie Tron. This is Minute 54, and I am your host, Duncan Shields, flying solo again today for this one. Let's see what happens in this minute. Uh, Flynn stumbles into the cave, quote-unquote, carrying Ram, and they have a nap, and it fades to black, and then they wake up to the cave slowly coming to life around them. Flynn walks slowly into the cave, exhausted, still carrying Ram, trying to navigate around what looks like a strange stalactite in the cave or a, a stalagmite. I'm not sure if it's stalactite or stalagmite. I remember the mnemonic, tights go up, might fall down, but I was never sure if that meant pointing up and down or being up or down like being on the floor is the opposite of pointing at the floor um okay i should look that up all right i just looked it up stalagmites project up from the floor it kind of it reminds <laughs> reminds me of a joke i always liked but uh well it's it's not for everyone it's like what's the difference between cherubim and seraphim Cherubim hang from the top of the cave. That's the joke. When I was a, a bitter teen, the idea that cherubim were bats was funny, and I had the mite tight thing as I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Anyway, I laughed when I heard it, but it's yet to make a single person laugh when I've told it to other people, so there you go. <laughs> anyway, they're in the cave and they're having a a little nap in the cave, and I just Man, I love the aesthetic of this cave. This is pure Tron aesthetic here. This little nook that they're in. Honestly, I could use a little more salmon, peel, or salmon, peach, teal, aqua, turquoise, and yellow. But I also really like this, this pure blue wash. You know, in a way, I wish the users were more of a dazzling combo of colors. Like they could have more of a, but a rainbow selection of colors, you know, really go all out. But that that would be a whole other movie. That wouldn't. That would be a whole different things, like you know, with more disco. <laughs> I imagine like it would be, if this was a little more Xanadu and a little less Tron, like in uh, like in Captain Marvel when she's cycling through possible costume options on her wrist pad there, and. Uh, like no, I have no idea why she'd actually have it, but that that neon, why she'd have a wrist pad that changes her costume options on her on her wrist, but uh, but it was really cool, especially when the neon suit pops up for a second with like twenty different colors. I'll I'll put a, a link to it if you didn't see the movie, but it was uh, something that I was like, oh, that would be really good in some movie like Tron or something similar to that. You know, or just some sort of neon 80s kind of movie. Uh, but this cool blue in this cave, in this bunker, in this nook here is also very 80s. Like very sort of, you know, Cameron's bedroom in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You know, like there was a lot of cold grays and cold blues in the 80s that were very sort of calming and uh, emotionally flat, I guess you could say. Like they just sort of were just kind of wrapped you up in a in a in a nice sort of neutral color and that's what these that's what these blues are here like they're safe they can have a nap they're in a cave who knows what's going on 
but it's that sort of because it was like one half of the 80s was neon brightness and sharp edges and one half of the 80s was like big puffy sweaters and very calming synth washes and neutral colors to just cuddle you up and that's uh that's the kind of 80s that i was that i was more into i think rather than the than the fluorescence and the neon but i don't know maybe that's kind of like well and also in this cave here it's amazing what you can accomplish with lines and circles you know like it's it's just rectangles and it's just circles but you can do a lot with just those two things and i know that's probably maybe the dumbest thing that anybody's ever said about graphic design, but stuff like this, you know, it really continues to blow me away. Like this set is one of the coolest sets in the movie by my, by my, by my measuring stick. I know because the, the cave that they were in before the big cave with the digital water pool was uh, like more like they were on black plywood boxes with velvet on them and then they added the cave later but this set actually is like all these shapes in here were present and they have white tape on them so this is all actually around uh dan shore and jeff bridges right now so i like that it's a it's a different feel it looks more uh lived in a little less fantastical but still as fantastical or just a different a different form of it so it's it's another aspect of the tron world that i really really like and it's dormant like this this idea that there are parts of tron that are dormant until you touch them that's something that i've always really liked you've got this entire say dashboard or something like that that doesn't exist until a program touches it and then it you know, beep boop bop flares into life with all the different rectangles and uh, and different levels and and different sort of gauges and stuff like that sort of come up. I just I love. I think that's such a a cool aesthetic and it's something that I've always loved uh, from this movie onwards. And it's probably in a bunch of other ones, but you know, when anything when anything fires up in a in a science fiction movie when it just looks like a you know, a gray basketball or something, and then you touch it, and then all these digital overlays sort of flare into being, and it unfolds. That's the kind of stuff that I just can't get enough of. So Flynn says, ah, those tanks won't find us here. And I don't really know how he knows that, but I guess he's just trying to comfort Ram. I mean, it's not like they're hiding somewhere super hidden. I mean, this bunker is kind of on the top of a pile. Anyway, whatever. But I think he's relatively confident that they're safe now. And I think he's also confident because he might suspect that they think that they're dead and that they're more concerned with finding Tron. I don't think Flynn gets right now that he is the target of any kind of hunt. He's been brought into the computer game world, but I'm not sure if he understands that he's uh, prey. So I think he's kind of having an adventure, but he's still trying to figure out what's going on. I don't think he really knows that uh, he's being hunted. So maybe he's like, okay, they're after Tron. Everything's cool. We can gear down. We can have a nap. 
I'm not really sure how programs sleep, but I'm glad that they do. Being awake continually would make me bonkers. My heart goes out. Shout out to people with insomnia. It sounds like the worst thing that could ever happen to a person or one of them. Uh, let's see here. So he puts down Ram, crawls over to a little nook, and says, This was supposed to be easy, before sighing another amazing Jeff Bridges naturalistic sigh, just this, ah. And then um, this right here with uh, Ram and uh, Flynn having a little nap inside the cabin or the, the, the cave, the nook that they're in, is such a desktop picture. It's so nice. It's just, it's a nice wide shot of the entire set and the two of them sleeping. It's just fantastic. And then we fade to black with another little electronic bird chirp. And I love these little electronic bird chirps. It's such wonderful atmosphere. Um, then we fade up immediately on a sleeping fin. And I'm not really sure where this fade... Like, I'm not sure the, what the usefulness of this fade is. Maybe they've been asleep for eight hours. Um, maybe it kind of covers Tron's journey to the to the MCP because he's got to go across a fair bit of ground. But I guess, I mean, it could have happened right away. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious about the fade, the fade to black here. Maybe it's an act break. Maybe this is the, the, the big, the end of act two. I'm not sure. So, but we fade up on a sleeping fin and he, a Flynn, and he rolls over a little bit and we get some more great flanged flat clunking noises from his armor scraping on, on what sounds like the plywood set just thunk bonk bonk thunk um, and Flynn sort of absently puts his hand as he's adjusting he rolls over and adjusts his weight and then he absently puts his hand on one of the light blue shapes on the ground as he's getting more comfortable and uh, as his fingertips touch it there's a second and then one of the shapes beeps once lights up for a second and there's a thunk somewhere else in the ship it's like beep thunk beep thunk and then it does this a few more times it's beeps becoming like duotone and then triple tone and then getting closer together and it's this it's this wonderful sort of audio cue that something simple happened and that is leading to more complex actions which is leading to more complex actions but the repetition of it is also like the starter in a car like a car engine trying to turn over like it's almost going or something like that but not not really it's it's more electronic than that it's very it's not like a car flynn is awake now opens his eyes wide going, what the hell is happening right now? He's like, I don't, what's going on? And the beeps start to sort of pitch down like they're running out of energy, but then a rising pitch synth whoosh sound happens and more of the shapes on the floor light up. And so the thing that was starting at the beginning has wound down and kind of like a starter, I guess, and then the uh, and then the rest of whatever's going on starts to really kick into high gear and now Flynn is is really panicking he's backed up and he's 
his eyes are flicking around. There are more lights and complicated electronic sounds, and the whole cave is starting to come alive around him. He's like, what is happening? Uh, Flynn's like, what's going on? What's going on? And Ram opens his eyes in dreamy shock at what's happening around him. He's like, what's going on? Am I still asleep? I read this this cool thing about Dan Shore. Uh, It says that he got out of filmmaking, and it says that he ran away from the world. He went to a tropical island called Saipan to teach filmmaking at the community college there. It's an American Commonwealth country, apparently, uh, and he's supposed to be there for six weeks, but it turned into a year, and then he became the director of the Visitor's Channel in Saipan, Tinian, and Guam. He met his wife there, and he owns a video production company called Shota Vision now. I'm not sure how up-to-date that information is, but Dan Shore sounds like a pretty cool guy. Um, I think he had a, a pretty wild life in the stage and then a pretty wild life in the screen and then uh hopefully he banked a lot of that money and and went off to to do this uh this fun tropical life in uh Saipan, Tinian and Guam. Living the life. Here's to you Dan Shore if you're listening. That sounds like you got a pretty good thing going on. Now that takes us to the end of the minute, but I do want to say that I mean it's pretty light they lie down, they nap, they wake up. There's not too much happening in this in this minute. But I do want to talk a little bit about some of the technical aspects of Tron just in general. Uh, Lisberger said that, the director, Stephen Lisberger, said that Tron might still have the record for shots of human beings composited into an artificial environment. There's 1,100 special effects shots in the film with 900 of them having composited humans in them. That's wild. I mean, I I imagine that record's been broken recently by Marvel or by uh, Lord of the Rings. or Well, Lord of the Rings isn't recent anymore. Yeah, I guess not. Um, but I'm sure half the Marvel movies are done in uh, mostly CG environments. But, but maybe not. I don't know. Hard to say. But uh, that's still... A huge thing and that record might still stand and if it doesn't it was broken only recently that's how ambitious this movie was but another thing to keep in mind is that each frame has like 15 layers to it of different cutouts of like the face the eyes the hands uh the raw film the removal of the background the bodies the armor the black line cutouts and then the the backlit glows that were added to it and then the hand-painted stuff on top of that. So some of them had 10 layers, some of them had 20 layers, but they averaged out to about 15 layers each. So the 75,000 frames that needed um, processing ended up being like 600,000 cells that all had to be kept in order and stored. And they were literally stored in 10 rented trailers that they brought to the set. Because they're like, we just need like temperature-controlled rooms to keep these all in. And then they needed to be shipped overseas, painted, sent back, and all kept in order. Which is a huge, 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 huge thing. 
just organizationally, just just from a straight organizational standpoint, that's a mammoth, mammoth task. So they were thinking like it was Christmas and all of this post-production had to be done before summer when it came out. It was like Christmas, 1981, 92. I mean, 1981, 82, and then it needed to be done before the summer. So they had this one idea to hire like a ton of college kids and teach them to ink and paint and rotoscope <laughs> and bash out like two scenes each to hit the quota. But that uh, course of action was ultimately rejected because if you hire inexperienced people, it's going to take them three quarters of the time just to teach them how to do this stuff. So that wasn't going to work. So ultimately they hired this guy, Arnie Wong, and farmed out the post-production to a company called Cuckoo's Nest in Taiwan. Now, the team over one thing that was cool was that the team over here made all these explicit videotapes on how to do the different techniques for each compositing situation that an animator or compositor might find themselves in. So they had all these sort of tutorial videotapes with very few uh, words and just showed like you know their hands and their bodies doing what needed to be done so if anybody over there uh, in Taiwan was like what do I do here there's like a no language barrier video tutorial on how to do it and it worked and this is all stuff they were again like everything else on this film they were like how do we do this I don't know how about this okay and luckily it worked like, that could have been the bottleneck that tanked the film, was all of this manual work that needed to be done by many pairs of hands, um, you know, that could have delayed and delayed and delayed the release. But luckily they got it out on time, or maybe not so luckily. Maybe if they'd been delayed to 1983, we'd be looking at a whole different success story for Tron. But that's, uh, or maybe it would have bombed even harder. Who knows? Who knows? But that's, uh, I thought that was still pretty cool that they made all these tutorials way before YouTube or anything like that, like way before the internet was even around. That's another thing about this movie is this is pre-internet and it's just, it's intense. It's wild how, uh, how this movie was so, what do you call it, precognitive? Or maybe it was just tapping into eternal themes that are still present. So that brings us to the end of the minute. I'd like to go over a little bit between the differences between the screenplay and the novel. In the novel, there's no real differences. It's just Flynn carrying Ram through the wilderness to what looks like a bunker. Um, and But there, when he puts Ram down, it kind of it kicks in right away. He doesn't fall asleep. He just sort of sits down, sits down, rolls over, and then, uh, and then the the ship starts coming to life around him. And in the screenplay, it's pretty similar, um, except that Ram's awake. So there's some small conversation snippets between Flynn and Ram as Flynn carries him around, like, "You gonna make it?" And Ram's like, "Yes," and stuff like that. So, all in all, pretty light minute, pretty short episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, that takes us to the end. So, uh, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us and talk to us more, uh, tronologicallyspeaking.com or drop us a line on Twitter at tronologicallyspeaking. 
Send us an email at tronologicallyspeaking at gmail.com or join us on Facebook at the Tronologically Speaking Tron Minute by Minute listeners page and we'll do our best to get back to you as soon as we can. Shout out to Pond5 for the opening and closing music. And as always, go on over to moviesbyminutes.com and see if your favorite movie is there. Especially the Star Wars Minute that started it all. If your favorite movie isn't there, consider one doing one yourself. And if your favorite movie is there, have a good time listening to it. Uh, definitely get involved. There's a, there's a group on Facebook. I think it's called the Minute Makers and Listeners page. Go there. It's a very inclusive, encouraging community. Get involved. They have meetups once a year in different cities. They're just a, a wonderful group of people. So that's all from me over here. Uh, so as the MCP is fond of saying... Three, two, one. End of life.